doing that, I want to talk about behavior. I don't know if it's because I'm a dad. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm thinking a lot about how people act, how people behave, uh, particularly how we behave to one another. Uh, I'm not talking about this because anybody did something specific before the service, just in case you're getting a little anxious. Um, it's not hard to kind of notice these days because everybody videos everything. Everybody puts it on social media. It is not hard to watch how we behave with one another. I've seen how we've done it in county board meetings, school board meetings, library board meetings. Uh, I hear how my educator friends and athletic coaches talk about how students behave or how parents behave. Uh, I've seen how we behave in this church. I hear from other pastors about how people in their church behave. Uh, it's easy to notice, but I don't know if we pay attention to it very much. Have you noticed or observed how we tend to behave to one another? To be honest, the thing that I notice no most often is it's not always as grace-filled as I would hope for. So why is that? That's really the question I've been uh, pondering is what is it that shapes the way we behave? The way we interact with one another. What defines how you choose how to behave? Certainly our internal values, our family systems, resources. But this week I came upon a really interesting concept um, that notices how when you compare uh, cultures, that uh, it, how they, how it talks about how it shapes our behaviors. And so culture is just this one facet of our lives that has a huge influence on who we are and how we behave. In particular, there's a significant distance or a difference between what they call an individualistic culture and a collectivist culture. Right? So let me, let me tell you a little bit, show you a little bit about what that means. An individualistic culture uh, are cultures that, that stress the needs of the individual more than the needs of the group as a whole. So cultures like North America and Western Europe are individualistic cultures. This shouldn't be surprising to you. So individualistic cultures tend to include people who are self-reliant. That's really important. Uh, independence is highly, highly valued. Um, individual rights and autonomy, those things tend to take center stage as the most important values. People often place a greater emphasis on like standing out, being unique, that, that sort of thing. And um, interestingly, in an individualistic culture, we actually, uh, it's considered embarrassing or shameful to like rely on someone else, be dependent upon them. Right. So this is I feel like this is a little bit about like telling the fish that the water's wet. Like you guys get this right. This is the world we live in. Um, a collectivist culture is kind of the opposite, like the thing you would think is different. That that culture tends to emphasize the needs of the group over the needs of or desires of individuals. In fact, many Asian countries such as China, Japan, South Korea, they are collectivist cultures. Even uh, cultures in South America are often like this, right? Um, in a collectivist culture, the rules of society are usually about promoting selflessness. Decisions are usually based on what's best for a group. Greater emphasis is placed on common goals and individuals. And, and really, families and community rights are way more important than individual rights in these cultures. And, and, and what I find interesting is that people tend to define themselves uh, in relationship to others, 
right? So they would tell you, oh, my name's Scott, and I'm a member of this tribe, this group. That's how I identify. A person from an individualistic culture might identify and say things like, well, I'm really analytical, or I'm really sarcastic, or I'm really athletic. That's who I am. But someone from one of these other collectivist cultures would be more likely to say, I'm a loyal friend. I'm a good husband. They define themselves in relationship to others. So that may just seem obvious to you, but I wanted to bring that up because it it helps me understand not just a lot about how we behave as a culture, but it helps me understand why the Bible is so difficult to grasp sometimes. Because here's the thing you need to know about the Bible is that the primary people in the Bible were the Israelites. And they were, without a doubt, a collectivist culture. They were not an individualistic culture. So God's voice throughout the formation of this nation of Israel was always a call for them to become a people, not persons. And as such... I think when I take my cultural uh, life that I live and I read into the Bible, I'm starting to wonder how much I'm missing because I'm coming at it from a completely different lens and I've been shaped by my culture. Think about it this way. I've really been in church all my, all my life in, in one way or another. And I know from being in a faith community all my life that one of the most important things about being a Christian is that we read my Bible right? I read my Bible. I I do it every day if I can, but spend time in God's word. Personal Bible study is this important piece uh, to what it means to follow Jesus. But when I read the stories in the Bible and how God moves and how God leads and how he guides his people, none of them had a personal copy of the Bible, right? They did not have that. God's word was never written down for each of them, but for all of them. So reading your personal copy of the Bible is definitely not a bad thing at all. I just wonder if I miss something in terms of how I relate to God and his commands and his presence because I think through my individualistic lens, not my collectivist lens. And I say all this today because we're starting a brand new series in Genesis. Uh, We're going through Genesis in the first nine months of this year, and we've broken that down into these mini-series. And this is a series where we wrestle with this really famous question out of Genesis chapter 4, which is, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Now, one of the things I hate the most is asking questions with obvious answers. Uh, And that one feels like a gimme. Like, it feels like the right answer is like, well, yeah, sure. I got to look out for people. I got to be nice to people. It's pretty obvious. But I think that this question and the stories that kind of flow out of this question in the next few weeks that we'll study uh, offer way more than an easy answer. If we can take off our cultural lenses, we actually will find a whole new way to understand God, understand the world, and understand ourselves. And so this section of Genesis, I think, has huge opportunity for you to transform the way you understand your faith. So we're going to sit with it for five weeks, and uh, we'll see what God leads us into. So that's where we're going. Today, I just want to, with all that preamble out of the way, I want to just read the story. 
Read the story of Genesis chapter 4. If you've been in the church for a while, this may sound familiar to you. But I want to read the story and I want to ask questions. That's kind of how I like to to move through the scripture. So let's start Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Adam made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Cain and Abel. This is chapter four. Chapter one was creation. Chapter two was more creation. Chapter three was Adam and Eve uh, walking away from God. Boom. Now we get the kids. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits from the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on fa- with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look on with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today, you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence, lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So I have questions. In fact, I think if a child reads this story, they have questions of this thing. And I think the more we ask questions of the text, the more it asks questions of us. That's always a good strategy. Uh, first question, why does God like uh, Abel's offering better than Cain's? Like, is he just not that into meat? Really likes fruits? Or the other way around? I don't know. Why is that like one's okay, one's not? Big question. Uh, question number two, why on earth are they sacrificing anything anyways? Who came up with that idea? One day did one brother is like, I think this would be a great idea. Okay, God, did, God didn't tell him, to, why are they doing this? And then there's this line that's like, sin is crouching at your door. What does that mean? Uh, And then finally, my biggest question has always been like, so God sends Cain out and he's concerned that other people are going to kill him. Where did those people come from? So we're going to wrestle with some of those questions today. The story centers on two brothers, two brothers presenting an offering, presenting a sacrifice which is weird because I don't know why they're doing it. So far, reading through the, Gen- through the book of Genesis, we've only covered three chapters, which are exclusively about creation and exactly two people, Adam and Eve. And now we get their kids. So far, there's no law given. 
God's given them no commands. There's no Torah. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no instructions to God's people. There isn't even a God's people at this point. Israel does not exist. But yet they're offering sacrifices like people in Israel do. So A, how do they know they're supposed to do that? And B, how are they supposed to know which one of these is going to be okay and which one isn't? I think it's a fair question. And again, the only possible answer in reading the text kind of literally there is that God just doesn't like fruit. That's it. I don't think that's it. Now, let me give you a reminder. We talked a little bit about this last week. There is this story that's taking place of Cain and Abel. In in the trajectory of time, it's really, really early on in the timeline. But the audience of that story was a group of people much further in the timeline. Because somebody told that story and wrote down that story for a specific audience. And that audience was the nation of Israel, right? Nobody was writing this story while Cain wasn't writing this down while it happened, right? And so the audience for this is a group of people, a nation of Israel, who had survived a national tragedy, a trauma. They were exiled from their homeland and taken into captivity in Babylon. And they told themselves their stories. They wrote their stories down so that they could remind themselves of who we are and how we got here. What was the path we took to get here so that we can avoid ending up in the same situation again? So it's a story that is shaped intentionally to communicate to a group of Israelite people. A group of people who had been given God's command somewhere around here, right? They've already received God's law. They've already been given God's commands. Uh, They had failed to be obedient to those commands, and now they're exiled. So God's law to the audience is a really big deal. It factors into the background of every single story that they tell themselves, including the story of Cain and Abel. So that's important for us to know that the audience that this is for understands God's law as they're hearing the story of Cain and Abel. And what does God's law say? What would the audience know about God's law? Uh, When they hear this story, what are they thinking about in God's law? Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. God's law. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of your first grain that you harvest. Similarly, in Exodus 13, there's another law on offerings, right? You are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to God. There you go. The audience, the Israelite people, understand the rules and how you're supposed to do sacrifices. They would not ask the question that I am asking. How do they know how to do that, right? It's just part of who they are. God's people know that they are supposed to bring offerings of grain or livestock. Both are acceptable, but there is one specific stipulation in both of those. Bring the first grain of your harvest. Bring the first offspring of the livestock. These laws are all about firsts. They're all about first fruits. Bring to God the first fruits of your harvest or of your flock, because this is a practice of trust for these people. You don't know if you're going to get more harvest. You're going to not, you don't know if, if your flock is going to grow. But you bring the first fruits of all of that, saying, I know God's going to take care of me. I trust in him so much that he can have the very first uh, products of my harvest. 
because I know God loves me and I know he'll care for me. So with that in mind, what did Cain and Abel do? In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. And his brother brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now you see a difference between these two offerings. Abel brings the firstborn like Israel had been instructed to. He obeys the law. He demonstrates his trust in God. And Cain didn't think very hard about this assignment. I brought some of my fruit. Does he do the bare minimum, but then he doesn't put his trust in God. Therefore, God honors Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain. So you see, Cain's story here from a, uh, is an individual version of what the entire nation of Israel will experience. Israel chose to be disobedient to God's law. They put some trust in themselves and they were exiled as a result. And what do we see in the Cain story, right? Cain chose to be disobedient, to fail to trust in the Lord, and he is exiled as a result. So the thing to start with in this story is that God wasn't being mean because he of some fruit. That's not what's happening here. The Lord is responding to the choices that his people are making about following their way or his way. This is a story that's about obedience. This is a story that is about trust in the Lord. So what I want you to do is put that on a shelf this idea of obedience and trust as the centerpiece of the story, because we're going to come back to it, but we have other questions to answer. So let's keep moving on. There were other people at this time. That's weird, isn't it? So uh, verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he puts a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Cain went out from the Lord's presence, lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then verse 17 says, Cain made love to his wife. She became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son. So when I read the story, I'm like, well, who's going to kill this guy? There's just four people on earth, right? Well, three now, right? Cain, mom, and dad. So who is he marrying? Who is he building a city with? That doesn't track for me. Uh, Some would say that Adam and Eve had other children. In fact, in chapter 5, it says that Adam and Eve had other children. Maybe they moved away. Maybe they were who Cain was afraid of. Or maybe he married his sister. I don't... Except that the story doesn't say that. It doesn't even suggest that. It just says there are other people. And so, honestly, the rational explanation is simply that there are other people living outside of this story that the Bible just doesn't tell us about. And it makes sense to me because remember who this story is for. This is a story for the people of Israel. And it's a story about how they became the people of Israel. This is not a story about all of the people. It's a story about God's people. It's about their community, about where they came from, how they came to be, and how can they avoid making these mistakes again. So we tend to read the story as an individual. Well, what did Cain do? Why did he deserve this punishment? What was going to happen to him after it? What should he have done? Of course, we read it that way. That's who we are. Because we think what matters most is the person, the individual. Freedom, choice, rights, individuals, right? We don't tend to start with, well, what's going on with the community? What's best for the community? How do we get our identity from the people, the community? 
But the second thing to notice is that this 100% is a story about community. Genesis is a story about the history of God's people, all of them together. That's why the question, am I my brother's keeper, is so important. It's so important that it gets stuck almost at the very beginning of the entire story. Right at the top, chapter 4. We just created things, we got people, they kind of screwed that up. And then the most important question. It is the central question to their identity. Am I my brother's keeper? How we attend to each other is what defines who we are. I should have looked this up. I didn't. It might be the first question that gets asked in the Bible at all. Somebody look it up and let me know. Is there another question that a person asks before this one? Let me show you something that's interesting that kind of fits in this theme. Um, This story is the first story to ever talk about firstborn, right? It's the first concept of the firstborn that ever shows up. You have Abel offering an offering from the firstborn of his flock. You have Cain, who is the firstborn child, the very first, he's the first firstborn, right? And in Hebrew, there's a word for firstborn, it's bekor. And the Hebrews have a very special meaning attached to this idea of firstborn. In Exodus, God says this, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, all the bekor. Whatever is first to open the womb amongst the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Firstborns are set apart for God. Now, because they are collectivist thinkers, not individualistic thinkers, set apart means something for the community. I hear that and I go, this is a person who is set apart as an individual away from the community, but not in God's people. They are set apart for their community. In their mind, the firstborn had responsibilities. It was their job to ensure that the family was provided for. It was their job to make sure that the family was secure, that they continue to partner with God in the story moving forward to be obedient to the law. The firstborn had a responsibility to the community and to the family. And so for the first firstborn to ask this question, well, am I my brother's keeper? Seems crazy. It illustrates just how far Cain has removed himself, not only from God, but from God's people. So this is a story about obedience and trust, but it's also a story about how our choices of trust and obedience impact our community, impact others. Think about it this way. Cain is doing something very similar to his dad, Adam, his father, made a choice to disobey God's law and to eat the fruit. And as the result of that, God says, now death has arrived. Adam made a choice, lack of obedience, the result was death for me. Similarly, Cain made a choice and his lack of obedience also resulted in death for someone else, for his brother. His choices had an impact on his people, on his community. And that is such a central idea to following God that it's right up here at the top of the the story. In our family, um, we argue. I have teenagers. I argue with them. They argue with each other. Sometimes 
the mom or their mom and I argue, like we argue, okay? Um, one of the things I think I've found myself noting is when that happens, particularly if my kids are arguing, is what you say impacts that other person. It's not just about your right to say it or to feel it, but your words impact someone else. And even beyond that, when the two of you are impacting each other, that impacts your mother. She has feelings when the two of you are arguing. And that impacts me. I have feelings because she has feelings. We are complex people layered into community. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you tend to think of yourself as layered into a community where your choices, your obedience, your trust in the Lord actually impacts the people around you? Or do you think about yourself as an individual? And what matters most is your choices and your rights and your freedom and how you align with the Lord. One of those versions of thinking really lines up with the scripture and one of them doesn't. So this story, this Cain and Abel story is a story about obedience. It's a story about obedience and trust. It's a story about how our obedience impacts others. And it's a story about our personal responsibility. Let's look at God's response to to Cain. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Again, he's kind of going back to the obedience thing. But if you do not do what is right, and then he says this, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That's an interesting way to phrase the idea of sin. I've always understood sin and thought of sin in this way of like, it's something I am powerless against. It just is in my life, in the world, all that kind of thing. But God really paints the picture of like, it's right there on the other side of the door. And you have choices. It seeks to rule over you and you can let it. You can open that door because your choices have an impact. But your anger is your responsibility. Keep it in check or something else worse is going to happen to you. Cain has choices in this story. And unfortunately, his choice is to look at his brother. Not with compassion, not with care, not with the sense of responsibility a firstborn should have towards their family, but instead with envy, with jealousy, with selfishness, with a desire to say, "Uh uh-uh, I've got to be as good as he is. My two kids really love ice cream. They get their own ice cream now, which, you know, sometimes maybe it's three in the morning when they're doing it. I would have no idea. I'm asleep. But, you know, ice cream before bed has been a pretty good staple of our house for a long time. Now, imagine if my kids were younger and we're having ice cream for that bedtime snack. My first son comes up and he's got this bowl and I put a big old, bowl, big old scoop of ice cream right in the bowl. He's super excited about it. Starts adding the hot fudge you know, the sprinkles, whatever else he wants to put over there. And then he looks over to his brother and he sees me putting the exact same size of a scoop in his bowl. But then he sees me add a little bit more, right? If you've got two kids, you know how this story goes. Suddenly my firstborn's attitude shifts. It changes. He was happy. He was content. He was excited. Now he's angry because he wants what's in his brother's bowl. As long as he was focused on what he had, he was content. 
the moment he started looking at his, at his brother as something he wanted, he was no longer content. His whole idea shifted. And so Cain had a choice. Cain had responsibility of his choices. He could look into his bowl or he could look into that of his brothers. He could look up to what God had given him or he could look sideways to see what he didn't have. And he chose option number two. So this story, I think, is really important at the beginning of the Bible because it is a story about our freedom to choose. It's a story about our freedom to choose obedience, to choose trust. And it's a story about how those choices have consequences with the people around us. From the very beginning, God is building a people. He is building a community that loves him and that functions with this sort of collective identity of, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Cain did not simply get exiled because he was a bad guy. He did not simply get exiled because he was disobedient. Cain made a choice and the result of his choice made him a danger to his community. Very clearly, very obviously, the way he, he chose to follow God or not follow God impacted his community in a significantly negative way. And so God has to remove him because he has to protect what he's building. And now this individual choice of doing whatever I want harms, puts my community in danger. Cain could have chosen to partner with God and instead he chose himself. In fact, remember what Ben was saying earlier in the service, that command in Matthew 22. It sums up really simply, love God, love your neighbor. That is the whole entirety of the law. And the very first stories we see of people in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve do a very poor job of loving God. They don't follow his, his commands. They, don't, uh, they act with total disregard for him, chapter 3. Chapter 4, Cain has a complete unwillingness to take personal responsibility for his community. He disregarded his brother and it led to his death. So you can summarize the, the chapter three and chapter four as humanity choosing not to love God and love your neighbor. And as a reason, we need a savior. We need Jesus Christ. So that's the story. Uh, again, I think it's an easy story to, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, okay, I get it, right? But it's so much richer than that. It impacts how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we see everything around us. And so I want to leave you today with some ways in which you can practice this new lens. I have nine ways. I'm going to go through them really quickly. Um, write them down. Snap a picture if that's what you want. Um, but nine ways I think that we, nine practices we can do that remind us that it's not enough just to be nice to each other. That's pretty shallow, right? We tell our three-year-olds to do that. But can we take ownership and responsibility for how our choices impact our collective community? So the first category I'll say is a relational category. And there's three things I think you can practice simply in a category of relational. Uh, one is confession. And what I mean by that is when you've gone off track, name it to the person that you have impacted. I'm starting with a big one, I guess, right? Say you're sorry. Identify where you have been disobedient, where you've not trusted God and how that has impacted somebody around you. Recognize that this is not just about you, but this is how your choices impact others. And when you see that, name it. Second, 
the other direction. Confession is about naming I've gone off track. What if you see your brother go off track? What if you see your spouse go off track? What if you see your child or your parent or your best friend? Can you speak the truth in a loving manner with someone you are in relationship to say, I think you've gone off track a little bit. And here's the most important part. It's impacting me. I think that's way better than I think you're off track. Fix yourself. No, I'm in relationship with you. If you see someone has gone off track and it's impacted, speak up. Name that. I love you so much. We belong in community together. So I got a name. Your choices have impacted me. So those are kind of negative in nature. The, the third one is to cheerlead. It's a little more positive in nature. In relationships with others, call out the things that you see that would, you would love to see repeated in their life and in your relationship. When they made you feel connected, when they made you feel valued, when they, when they took effort to pay attention to you, say, I love that you did that. That was really important to me. It makes, us feel, it makes me feel like uh, we are part of the same community that we're connected. I think it's important. So cheerlead, call it out when you see it. So those are relational ways in which we can practice this mindset. Uh, the next one are just practical ways. Ways that I think you can practically uh, move this forward. And the first one is to initiate. We live in a world where we're waiting for people to connect with us. That's a very individualistic mindset. When are they going to call me? When is she going to text me back? When is he going to follow through on that thing? We are waiting for them to come to us. Don't wait. Do life together when it's inconvenient. Make it a priority to initiate connection, conversation, even when it's not convenient, initiate. Similarly, meet needs before you are asked to. I don't know if you've ever run into this scenario. Uh, Someone might be going through something. Somebody might be just busy or stressed. And you might ask the question, well, how can I help? What do you need? What's the number one answer you tend to get back from that in our culture? Oh, I'm fine. No, you're not. No, I'm fine. I got it under. No, you don't have it under control, right? So you have to be the one to break that open. You have to meet the needs before they are asked. Pay attention to the people in your community, in your life. Pay attention to your neighbor, to your friend. Put yourself in their position and meet a need before being asked. And I promise you it will shape the way you think about yourself and God and the the community you're in. And then the third one is simply hospitality. We live in a world that closes our doors once we're inside, but instead open your doors, invite people in, put them around your dinner table. The simple work of opening your home and creating space for other people will be more transformative than you realize. Do you realize how difficult it is for people who live in this community but weren't raised in this community to feel like they belong? Because you all have places to go for dinner on Sunday afternoon. Right? You've been doing it for years. It's always grandma's. But people who move into this community don't have that. And you can change this idea of permeability just by being hospitable. All right. So we had relational, uh, three ways relationally we can practice this, three practical ways. And then I'll end with three spiritual things that we can do to change our mindset. And the first one is simply prayer. Actually pray for specific people whom you know and love continuously, regularly, make it, a, make it a priority. It says prayer is not just about my relationship with you, God, but it is about our relationship with you, God. And I want to I wanna do that. So bring other people into prayer with you. Uh, second is you 
can invite people into a next step in their spiritual journey. Because you, believe it or not, provide an important viewpoint on the lives of the people you love. You see things that they don't see. Uh, You can bring awareness to that. And you can call it out when there's a next step for someone to be had. You can love them. You can challenge them. You can say, look, I think there might be another step. How can I help you take it? As someone who's had that done to them, I tell you, we just don't often see it ourselves. It's hugely valuable. And then finally, uh, ask. Ask real questions, I guess I would say, right? Um, Ask real questions about how the people you love are loving God and loving their neighbor. Don't just ask questions like, how you doing? Vacation schedule? What's going on this year for you guys, right? Move beyond niceties and ask some questions that actually draw out this reality that we are our brother's keepers. So nine things I think we can do to practice this communal mindset that God bakes into his story, that God bakes into his people. Maybe my assignment to you is to practice two this week. See what God does with that. See how it shapes your heart. 